All right, if you will, let's go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we have been now for a few weeks in the book of Philippians, working through this book of joy, talking about the topic, the issue of uncommon joy. And this week we're going to be looking at a joy-filled life. I remember Paul is writing this from prison in Rome. He's writing to the church at Philippi, these Philippian Christians, urging them to remember um, their purpose as God's people, that they were created by Him, they were saved by Him, and they were sent by Him for His redemptive purpose. And pursuing God's purpose for our lives Christ fills us with His joy, an uncommon joy. And we've talked for several weeks, like how can Paul write from prison and be so full of joy? Because it's an uncommon joy. It's a joy that can only be found in Christ. No one rejoices about being in prison. No one rejoices about suffering. But through Christ, we can. And so Paul is writing to this church and he's encouraging them to continue on and to rejoice in Jesus. And today, again, we're going to be looking at what it means to have a joy-filled life. And so as we look at chapter 2 today, we're going to be kind of covering chapter 2 from about 30,000 feet. The temptation for me especially is to work through chapter 2 for an extended period of time, but... But what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 2 from such a way that we see its entirety. And as we look at chapter 2, I want us to keep this in mind. That a joy-filled life is one of unity and service as you follow Jesus' example of humility. With that in mind, I want to pray for us and we will dive right in. Father, we ask right now that you bless the reading of your word. We pray, God, that you would speak through your Holy Spirit. A message that we need to hear. God, you know we live in a world where people are so void of joy. Yet you call your people to have joy in all things. So through the preaching of your word, God, through the reading of your word, will you remind us that we as your people, those who have trusted in Jesus, are to be filled with an uncommon joy. A joy that is only explainable through the work and the words of Christ. A joy that makes other people look at us as if we are strange. A joy that makes people want what we have so that we can point them to you. Father, as we look at your word this morning, will you show us what it looks like to live and have a joy-filled life? Not a life that's void of sadness, not a life that's void of, void of trials or hardships, but, but God, a life that rejoices in all things, good and bad. Because of the hope 
that we have in Christ. So God, we ask that you would speak through your spirit, through your word. And that you would receive honor in our time that we have together. God, that you would change our hearts. Where there is sin that needs repenting of, that we would repent. That where there is brokenness in our life, that we would be encouraged by the message of hope that we find in your word. But collectively, God, we ask that your word take such deep root in our lives that we are ready and we are willing to go forth with the advancement of the gospel, knowing that there is nothing that can stop us because of the promise you made through your son Jesus that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let us hold tight to the hope of your word, of your son, of your purpose. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A joy-filled life is one of unity and service as you follow Jesus' example of humility. That begins by having a gospel mindset. Paul begins to appeal to the Philippian Christians to live a life worthy of the gospel. And he does that in verse 1 and verse 2 right off the bat by making this statement. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He starts in verse 1 with these several statements that, that are absolutely true, but he's using those statements in order to point us to the truth of verse 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, we find that in being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We are, as the people of God, to live in unity, walking arm in arm for the purposes of Christ. We all come from different backgrounds. We all have different situations in life. We have different careers, different family situations. But nonetheless, we have one purpose, and that is to glorify God in all we say and do. And Paul is writing to the Philippians, encouraging them to remember this, that they are to walk together, having the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and being of one mind. But the question really becomes, how in the world are Christians able to do this when our nature is completely opposite of that? Our nature doesn't want us to walk in unity. Our nature wants us to look out for ourselves and to put ourselves first. He goes on in verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others. We go against our nature when we embrace a gospel mindset that sets Christ 
first and foremost. Now, here's the deal. We, you and I, we cannot achieve this on our own. We can't do this on our own power. We don't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to walk in unity. I'm going to have this same mind and this same love. And I'm going to walk in full accord with my brothers. It's only possible through the work of Christ. When we submit our lives to Jesus, when we surrender our lives to Jesus for salvation, He radically changes who we are. We are new creations in Christ. The old has passed and the new has come. So then a gospel mindset is about the people of God living together for the purposes of God, for the glory of God. And to do this, we must put Jesus and other people before ourselves. Now again, that's completely anti what the worldly message would have us to hear. And so when we talk about a gospel mindset, we talk about putting Jesus and others before ourselves, what is the root of that? The root of that is what we find here, and that it's humility. Humility is not something that we are very good at. Being humble is not something we're very strong with. So how does one become humble? How does one have a gospel mindset that is so transformed by Jesus that we live life for the good of others and for the glory of someone else? Jesus. How does that happen? It happens by understanding that we have a gospel example. See, true humility, Christian humility can only come when we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. See, He is the supreme example of humility for us. Verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 serves as sort of a bridge between verses 1 through 4 and then 6 through 11, which is kind of usually referred to as the Christ hymn. Five bridges that gap. He's encouraging them. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, walk in full accord with one another. And don't do it out of selfish ambition. Don't do it for yourselves. But in humility, count others higher. And you could imagine if we were reading this letter for the first time, as we get to that point, we're saying, but how in the world do we do that? And so Paul begins to unpack how. How am I to live a life of humility? How am I to live a life that puts others before myself? And so he begins to unpack that for us. I don't know if you notice, but verse 2 is kind of odd in the fact that it uses the word mind two different times. Right? Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Have same joy, have the same love, excuse me, being a full of cord and then of one mind. What mind? 
Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is urging them to have a unified mind that is a reflection of the mind of Christ. But the reality is for us that in order for us to have the mind of Christ, we first have to know Christ. Again, you can't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to live the life of a Christian. Like you can live a good life. You can check off a lot of good moral boxes, but you're not going to live the life of a God-honoring Christian without the help of Christ. Unless Christ changes you, you will not be ultimately changed. That's why Paul in Galatians could say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. So it's God who changes us through the work of Christ. And as we're changed by the work of Christ, then we're completely changed, right? We're no longer the same person. Our our wants change, our desires change, our thoughts change. Our minds begin to change. And so we have this great example of what the gospel does in us by looking to the greatest example, and that's the example of Christ Jesus himself. Again, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, being God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. See, Jesus was God. We see that all throughout the New Testament. Pointing to the fact that Jesus is very God of very God. And because he is God, he had all power. Yet he chose to submit himself to the Father's purposes in order to accomplish a greater Mission to redeem his people. There was no sense of entitlement in the life of Christ. He was completely God and yet he submitted himself himself to the Father's plan. And instead of displaying his sovereign power... Jesus did the absolute opposite. He emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. and Being born in the likeness of men. And he found himself in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So rather than exalting himself, Jesus empties himself. I wonder how many of us need to empty ourselves of ourself. How many of us exalt our our talents, our 
way, our faith, our abilities, instead of just empty ourselves and following Christ. It's very tempting to think more of ourselves than we should. We can look at our accomplishments, our families, our careers, our good works, and boast about those things. All the while forgetting that all of that is possible and is only possible through the work of Christ. For by grace we have been saved through faith, but not of ourselves is the gift of God, so that none of us may boast. So everything we have to bring to the table is not good enough. We desperately need another, and, and we so put all of our eggs in the same basket, thinking that we can hand that to the Lord and that the Lord will be pleased with that. But the reality is... We must empty ourselves. Right? What did Paul say? I have been crucified with Christ. I have been put to death so that I can walk in the ways of my Savior. Now the thing is, is he's, he's emptied himself and that doesn't mean he's ceasing to be God. In fact, instead of taking away his godness, he adds to that by becoming a man. Right? So he's not half man and half God. He's 100% man and 100% God in order to lay his own power and prestige down through the incarnation. Through, so through him becoming man, he's displaying his power even greater. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. To the point of death, even death on a cross. I think far often we forget that Jesus' purpose was to glorify God by achieving and accomplishing redemption for the people of God. Jesus didn't come to make a name for himself. Jesus didn't come to boast of his own works. Jesus didn't come to become this mighty worldly, earthly king. Jesus came to glorify God by achieving the mission of God. Jesus came to die. The book of Isaiah backs that up. For it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And the thing about it, Jesus becoming a man wasn't even the lowest point here. Right? He's making himself low, and, and him becoming a man wasn't even the lowest point. He goes much further, right? We, we've read verse 8 several times now, and I want to keep reading it until we get it. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was willing and ready to give his life for the good of others. The example of Jesus is to be emptied, yet much of our thinking urges us to be exalted. Could Jesus have bypassed the cross? Absolutely. He had all the power in the world to do that. Yet he chose to submit to the Father's will in order to save his people. 
You know, when we put ourselves in front of the mission that God has for our lives, when we put ourselves before that, we're living in open rebellion to God. God has created us and He has saved us for His purposes and His purposes alone. God doesn't create us and save us so that we could live however we want to live for the glory of our name. The breath in our lungs, the blood that flows through our veins, the brain that works in our head, the heart that pumps, is all done by the grace of God. And what God wants for His people is for us to die to ourselves and to live to Him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. Let's think about that. What is the better tool in God's hand? Someone who is boastful of their own power, their own talents, their own abilities, or one that realizes that he has nothing of his own to give. And so he says, God, kill me so that I could be used for your glory. The gospel example that we see in Christ Jesus is that verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our hopes, our dreams, our wants, our desires, our preferences, our comfort must be emptied out for the greater purpose of magnifying Jesus and making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Folks, Jesus went to the cross. God himself went to the cross. Why? In Galatians, we see that he did so to become a curse for us. If you want to flip back to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Paul writes this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We can stop right there for just a second. You know, so often we face people, we come in contact with people, we know people who think that all they have to do to be accepted by Christ is live a good life and to avoid certain things. We think that if we just live a right way, we live as good old boys and good old girls, that God will look at us and have compassion on us on the last day. But Paul is refuting that right off the bat. If you, if you rely on works of the law, if you try to do it yourself, you are under a curse. And it is written that cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Which means if you mess up one ounce in all of your life, then you are accursed. Verse 11, he says, now it is evident then. That no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by what? Faith. 
But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Listen to this. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus goes to the cross to become a curse for us. For us, but that's not even the end of the story. Flip back even further to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, we see that he doesn't simply become a curse for us, he becomes a curse for us in order to atone for our sins, to make us right with God. Chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have no hope outside of Christ. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we could go on and on. Jesus goes to the cross. Bearing the curse that is meant for you and I. And he goes there to become a propitiation. An atoning sacrifice for us. So that we don't taste death. We get to receive the glories of Christ. If we trust in him. In the Gospels, Jesus says that greater love has no man, no one than this, than he lay his life down for his friends. The example that we see in the Gospel of how we are to live, no better picture than here in the example of Christ, is one of humility where we put others before ourselves. But that's still not the end of the story. The death of Christ isn't the end. Look at verses 9 and 10. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Christ lays himself down. He becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in his death, he pays the price for your sin and my sin. If we would trust in Jesus, he bears the wrath of God. And God, therefore, verse 9, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God exalts the Son and he announces salvation comes only from him. Flip back to Isaiah chapter 45. 
you want to see God's power on display, look at the Old Testament prophecies of him sending his son to redeem his people and then see Christ fulfill that in the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 45, starting in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, verse 18, who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and he did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth, I declare what is right. So assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. So turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 53. 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Remember, this is well before Christ was ever born. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. For who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But... Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed.
healed, and all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for this his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. The death of Christ was not the end of the story. The death of Christ really began a beginning of a story, and that's our story. A story that is so radically changed by the good news of Jesus and the death of Jesus dying in our place for our sins that we can live a life of uncommon joy. And God exalts his son. And because Jesus is exalted, he says that every knee will bow to the glory of God the Father. And I want you to hear that. Every knee. This doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved regardless of whether they trust in Jesus or not. But this means that everyone, when they stand before God, they are going to worship. Many will rejoice in God in this day. We will surrender to Christ. And we will stand before God and hear, welcome, enter in, my good and faithful servant. But there are going to be a lot who live in absolute rebellion and rejection of God who will stand before God on that day and they will realize everything they've been hearing their whole life was absolutely true. But they're not going to hear, enter in, my good and faithful servant. They're going to hear, depart from me, worker of evil. I never knew you. But nonetheless, everyone will bow in worship to that good God who upholds righteousness with his hand, who is perfectly just in all of his ways. See, the reality is, folks, that we all will stand before God one day. Are we going to be able to stand before God and confess that we had surrendered our lives to the work of Jesus, trusting in his righteousness, not our own? Or are we going to stand before God and try to push him all of our good works and all of our many crowns and all of our achievements and hope that he would just be compassionate? Because the message of Scripture is very clear. That all of those things that we try to offer God, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. The one thing that God accepts is the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. So every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christians. 
those who have trusted in Jesus. We must have the mind of Jesus. This is not optional for us. And to refute the claim that we must have the mind of Jesus and to live otherwise reveals the true condition of our hearts. Because there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who do not live under the mind of Jesus. There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who live completely anti of what the Scripture declares that we should live like. The only one who can claim Christian is the one who has trusted completely and utterly in the work of Jesus alone for salvation. Guys, we're not going to work our way into good merits and good graces with God. He's not gonna, we're not going to stand before him and he say, well, you did that, you did that, you really goofed up on this, you really failed here. But you know what? The good outweighs the bad. The good never outweighs the bad. The only way we enter into eternal worship of our King is when we trust in the Son. So I don't know about you. Maybe you're living your life. You're trying to hide it. You're trying to conceal that you're not really a Christian. You know, maybe you're just playing the Christian game for business purposes, or maybe you just want to meet, you know, good people, or you think that you're doing it right. I'm here to tell you that's not the answer. And I'm urging you through the word of God to repent and trust in Jesus. But in Philippians chapter 2, we see this. We see that the people of God are to have a gospel mindset, that we are to be humble, that we are to to put others before ourselves, that we are to live for the purposes of God above all things, that we are to follow the example of Jesus Christ, and that we are also to see that the gospel is at work. See, having the mind of Jesus and following the way and the example of Jesus leads to gospel work. You can't truly trust in Christ and leave unchanged. I've told you many times that when I was a youth, we were at youth camp, and I, the only thing I remember were this one, this, was this one phrase from Johnny Honey. He said, no change, no Christ. If your life is still the same as it's always been, you don't know Jesus. Because when Jesus comes and he saves our lives, we are no longer the same person we once were. And so for us, the work and the grace of Jesus are the Christian's motivation to fight the good fight of faith with perseverance. We don't stop. Times are going to get difficult. There are going to be many days where it's hard to follow Jesus. Do not stop. Persevere. Paul goes on in verse 12. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always Obeyed so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That doesn't mean we're working to achieve salvation, that just means we're working until the very end where we stand before God and we have proven that we have trusted in Jesus above all things. And the reality is, is that we can't work out our faith. Until Jesus has worked in us. So Christians, we are to live lives of obedience to Jesus and his call. As a result of his work. Remember Ephesians 2. For by grace we have been saved through faith. Not of ourselves. It is the the gift of God so that none of us may boast. And he goes on. For we are his workmanship. Created by God for good works. Which he has prepared beforehand. So that we would walk in them. 
We are created and we are saved by God for the purposes of God. We don't earn the grace of God. We work because of the grace of God in our lives. What does this work look like? It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That'll preach. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How often do Christians seem to be the most lacking of joy amongst all people? We gripe, we complain, we moan about every little thing. Yet the uncommon joy of being found in Christ is to do all things without grumbling and disputing, grumbling or complaining. This past, past week, I've read a couple different resources talking about church revitalization and that sort of thing and and there's this common thread in all of them that churches that are struggling churches that have lost their zeal for Christ they've become so inwardly focused that all they do is gripe and complain about everything they dispute with one another and they can't do anything together They've forgotten what it means to surrender to Christ. They've forgotten what it means to walk arm in arm together for the purposes of God above ourselves. The gospel at work is having gratitude in Jesus and for the work of Jesus. So that we can truly be what he has called us to be and that is shine as lights in a dark world. It makes evangelism and discipleship extremely difficult when we live our lives completely anti what the gospel demands of us. When I live my life as someone who is just a complete sourpuss and I'm never happy about anything and all I want to do is dispute with everyone and then I try to invite someone to church, why in the world would they want to invite, come to a church or why in the world would they want to have something like that? But if I lived with the uncommon joy of being redeemed and purchased by Christ and that I'm putting everyone and Christ especially above myself, that's a lot brighter light, isn't it? And I understand it's a difficult task to live so joyously. It's a difficult task to live for the glory of God. But for the people of God, it's made possible through the Holy Spirit who is living within us and the truth that we can hold fast to God's word. Verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It's a lot easier to pursue Christ without grumbling or without disputing when we understand the reason we're doing so. When we realize the greatness of God's salvation in us, that He has saved me from death to life and He has set me apart so that I could do His work His way and that He has given me His word to stand on and He has given me His Holy Spirit to live with inside of me, it makes it a lot easier to not run in vain or labor in vain. So the question is for us, well, how in the world 
when we surrender to God? What does it look like when we surrender to the work of Jesus? Verse 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. When we surrender completely to the will and the work of Christ, we rejoice. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You want true, uncommon joy? Surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. You want to know what it's like to be happy in the Lord? Submit to the Lord. You want to try to find joy in all of these other things? You will be let down. They will fail you. Surrendering completely to Christ is rejoicing in the work of Christ. In the latter half of verse chapter 2, Paul gives us two examples, real life examples, of those who are walking in light of the gospel. Verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. The first example that we see is Paul is presenting Timothy before him as a real life example of one who has a mind of Christ. He seeks the interest of others. And he's wanting to send Timothy, but he can't quite yet. And so he's just encouraging him, like, listen, remember Timothy. Remember the example of Timothy. Not to make much of Timothy, but to make much of Christ in Timothy, who has given himself completely for the gospel. And we can see that because Paul had discipled Timothy. He had taught Timothy. He had prepared Timothy. He had brought Timothy under his wing to live life with him. And he knows that Timothy is the one who would eventually carry the torch of the gospel when Paul can no longer do that. And he is reminding the Philippians, listen, Timothy has proven his worth as he has served with me in the gospel. His example is clear. You know, it's kind of odd when you look at these portions because you see such a powerful message in the first part of chapter 2 and then you just have these examples. So you just, what in the world do we do with that? Well, one, it reminds us that our mission is to make disciples as Paul made a disciple of Timothy. It's God who saved Timothy, but then God also put Timothy under Paul's leadership so he could be prepared to go on and go forth doing the work that he had been called to do. So with that, you need to remember what our mission at New City is. That we exist to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. It's the gospel that changes everything. And because of the gospel, we are set apart to live for the glory of God. So let me ask you this question. Who are you discipling? Who are you investing your life into to prepare that the gospel, so that the gospel can continue to go forward? Again, Paul wanted to send Timothy to them, 
Paul loved this church. Remember, this is the first church Paul planted. A ragtag group of people who were redeemed by the blood of Christ, who had nothing in common but Jesus. And he wanted to send Timothy. But because of the conditions of Paul not knowing where he was at, being in prison, not knowing if he would live to the next day, he wanted Timothy to stay there to continue preaching the gospel where they were. So he sent him another. Look at verses 25 and following. Because Timothy can't come, verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Timothy can't go, so Paul sends Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is a man who has a great love for the people of Philippi. That's where he's from. And we see his great love and that he leaves to go minister to Paul while Paul is in prison. But while he's there, he nearly dies. And in the whole process, he's just longing to be back with his church. He desperately wants to be back in the midst of his people. To shepherd them, to love them. Epaphroditus is modeling what it looks like to joyfully serve Christ by putting others first. He was willing to leave his faith family for a season to go minister to someone who desperately needed it. He wanted to go back. And Paul sent him back. Paul loved this brother. And he rejoiced in the fact that God was merciful on his life. He said, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow had he not have lived. And so Paul sends Epaphroditus back. To his church, to his people. So that the work of the gospel would continue. You know, the life of a Christian is one of a servant. It's one who lays himself, herself down for the good of the message of the gospel. We are to always be laying ourselves down for the good of others. We are, in essence, to sacrifice ourselves for a greater purpose. We saw that in the example of Jesus in verses 5 through 11. And so to close, I want to read that one more time. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I want to ask you this morning, has Jesus so invaded your heart that you are living a joy-filled life of humble service? Let's pray. Our Father, what a great Savior you have given your people. We had no worth on our own. We had no credibility on our own. We had no hope on our own. But by your grace, you send your son Jesus to become the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to bear the wrath that was meant for, for me and for the many others. And, and he took that wrath in our place for us so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. What a great salvation! So, Father, let us rejoice in the work of Jesus on our behalf. And let us take the example of Jesus so that we can go forward, never stopping to proclaim the good news that Jesus saves. So, God, would you make much of yourself here today? For those who have never truly confessed Jesus as Savior, who are still trying to live their life their way on their own terms, hoping that God would save, let them come today surrendering completely and fully to Jesus Christ, the only hope we have. For those who trust you here today, who may just be struggling through different seasons of life, will you remind us of the gratitude that we can have in Christ? So that we can live a life of rejoicing. To not be grumbling or disputing. But with every breath praising our great King. God, would you honor yourself in this time? Would you work through the working and the power of your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.